Calls. Hello and welcome to Ocean Calls, the podcast making waves on our blue planet. I'm your host, Euronews science reporter Jeremy Wilkes. Do you, do you remember him? No. Oh. Okay. Yeah, and you switched off my camera, did you? You just press the, the red button and then it starts recording. Up. We're already in our second season, and as you can hear, me and our producers are working hard and sometimes struggling with the technology to bring you the most honest, in-depth conversations about the health of our oceans. In previous episodes, we learned how climate change now means there are dolphin and tuna around Greenland, mixed in with the narwhal and beluga, and we explored why we need to change our attitudes to sharks. Scroll back and have a listen when you can. Today, we're turning our attention to something often found on the dinner table, salmon. Initially, we were thinking, should we as consumers choose wild or farmed salmon? But then we looked at the figures, and there's not much choice. 94% of the salmon sold in the EU is farmed, meaning it comes from aquaculture. For comparison, almost all the cod and tuna on sale is caught in the wild. So what's the situation with salmon in Europe? Can we help wild stocks recover? And how is aquaculture becoming more sustainable? To explore these questions, I'm joined by Osa Maria Esmark, a senior scientist specialising in fish welfare at Norwegian food research institute NOFIMA. Hello, Osa. Hello. And Ken Whelan, a senior advisor at the Atlantic Salmon Trust. Hello, Ken. Hello, Jeremy. And at the end of the episode, you'll hear... ...from the Dutch DJ Armin van Buren about his favourite ocean experience. Well, very good. And I'm just wondering, I know what I had for dinner last night, but I'm wondering, do you eat salmon, both of you? I'm guessing you probably do. Um, Just tell me a little bit about how you choose the salmon that you eat. Well, I can start. I eat salmon two, three times every week. I buy farm salmon because that is what we get in our stores. And uh, I either just fry it in the pan with onion and garlic uh, or I bake it in the oven. And do you pay a lot of attention to where it's come from? Do you kind of select between one farm and another, another producer? Do you look a lot at the the packet? I don't have the luxury to do that where I am living uh, because we don't have that uh, enormously selection in the stores. Uh, But it is Norwegian uh, since we produce a lot of farm salmon in Norwegian that we don't have any foreign salmon in our shops. You can. Um, my answer is a little bit more complicated. Um, obviously, I've had the luxury down the years of, of, of eating quite a lot of wild salmon. Um, but unfortunately, at this stage, the uh, stocks of wild salmon are now very, very low. So in many cases, uh, there's no harvest of salmon either from rod and line or from, from nets. But we're fortunate here in Ireland that we have a system that we called ocean ranching where basically we take the salmon smolts, we let them feed naturally in the ocean, and then they come back into us then as adults. And we have a couple of uh, rod fisheries that are based around ocean ranching. So I'm fortunate enough to be able to fish on one of those. So that means that I can take the fish because of the fact that they are, if you like, they are uh, fish that are stocked for catching. I eat farmed fish as well. Again, I'm fortunate in the sense that I have a couple of different choices available to me. But I like the fish that come from the low density, high energy sites. For example, in Ireland, we have an excellent farm just off an island called Clare Island that gets the full uh, movement of the ocean. The fish are stocked at very low densities and the flesh in the fish is magnificent. 
those basically ranched fish and far and uh, farmed uh, salmon from one of those open uh, sites that I, I prefer. So you're the picky guy in the fishmongers then. Going I am in there the picky guy. Yeah, the everything. fishmonger hates to see me coming. I'm lifting the gill of the fish and looking at the looking at the gills and so on, even of the trout, you know. So most people don't really know about the lives of salmon. Can Ken? Can you just kind of talk us through? What is the life of a salmon? Can you explain it? I, I find it easiest to explain it in the context of the life cycle of an Irish salmon because there are two dates that you have to remember. One is Christmas Day and the other is my birthday. And that's always a good way to remember. So the peak of the egg-laying egg season is around Christmas week and the peak of the egg-laying itself is normally around Christmas Day. So what happens is you have the males and the females just sitting over the gravel at that stage. And um, the female then digs out a nest, a little pocket, if you like, in the gravel. And she then moves up into that pocket and releases her eggs. And as she releases the eggs, then the male releases the milt onto the eggs. And quite quickly, then the eggs develop little eyes. And then um, they develop a little head that pops out from the front of the egg, a tail that pops out from the back. And it's just like an ordinary egg. It actually has yolk inside it. And that yolk sac is absorbed and the little fish moves out onto the top of the gravel around the 1st of April, around the, my birthday. And normally then the fish would stay in fresh water, depending on how much food is available, between one and five years in fresh water. So in Southern Europe, in Britain and Ireland, normally our smolts would go to sea after two years. Whereas in Norway, in the very northern part of Norway, in Russia, the fish might stay five years in fresh water. They then head out to sea. And again, they have a choice. They stay at sea then for one, two, three or even four years. And depending on how long they stay at sea, they come back then at different sizes. So the fish after one year would be about uh, two kilos, about four or five pounds. And the fish after two years then would be normally about four and a half, five kilos, about 10 or 11 pounds. And that's really the, the life cycle of the fish as such. That, so that's this story of the life of a wild salmon. Um, also, can you talk us through the life of a farmed salmon? Because it surely isn't the same. It's not that different. Uh, they go through, in a way, the, the same stages, but in a different time frame. Farmers have a hatchery uh, where the eggs is uh, hatching, also around... Uh, uh, Christmas, uh, and then you have the yolk sac uh, stage, and then after the yolk sac is uh, absorbed, you transfer them to a start feeding compartment, and there you start to give them uh, artificial feed, or sort of pellet feed, and, uh, and then you allow the fish uh, to grow, and you adjust uh, the feed size to the fish size, you always uh, feed them pellets, and uh, after a while, the fish needs to be transferred from fresh water to, to seawater. The traditional way is that you keep them on land until they are around 100 gram uh, in fresh water, and then you transfer them to, uh, to open net pens in the sea. But now, the, the latest years, uh, more and more farmers, they, they want to keep the fish longer uh, on land to keep them away from open sea for a longer period of time due to the sea lice and uh, SKP that are the most challenges that uh, the farmers are, are facing. And once they are in the sea, they, uh, they grow there uh, until they are four or five kilo before they are slaughtered. Due to uh, genetic selection over almost 50 years now, 
the time that this lifespan is lasting from egg to five kilo is almost a half than you have from a wild salmon. So you can you can breed a salmon for two years from egg to slaughter size, depending a little bit on the strains and the conditions. So we kind of accelerated the life cycle in order to, to suit our needs. And, and, and you're an expert in fish welfare. What, what Can you describe to us really what what that means and and what is the situation regarding the welfare of these of these farmed salmon oh the welfare is a very wide uh, area but of course it is intensive production and there are uh, challenges for instance there has been developed a lot of vaccines that take care of uh, a lot many of the diseases we also have got uh, almost control over uh, like uh, deformities that uh, has been in the previous times due to, for instance, high temperature. But we know so much more now about what is causing uh, challenges for, uh, for the welfare. And we know also very much more about how to deal with these welfare issues. But for the fast growing, that is due to selection in a way. So it is uh, the genes that are selected for it. I guess it goes without saying that obviously we hope that the best kept animals will have lots of space and they'll have you know room to roam around. And when you look at the life cycle described by Ken, you imagine something, an animal that really wants to travel. How do you kind of overcome that urge in, in aquaculture? And, and is, is it fair, really, what, what's going on there? At least in Norway, the farmed animals are protected by laws. So there are quite strict regulations how much density, for instance, you can have in the sea. There is max 25 kilo per, per cubic. But if you look at the salmon behavior, they want to stay in schools. So if you have a, a net pen, they don't utilize normally the, not, the whole net pen. Even if the farmer would like to wish to have a very high density. They also see that this is not very good for the fish, especially for the skin health. So they want to keep to a lower density. I think that it's important to remember that for the farmers, it is good money to keep the fish healthy and in good welfare. Did you know that salmon can migrate more than 3,000 kilometers upstream through freshwater to spawn? that is comparable to driving from Oslo to Athens. Ken, what do you think about aquaculture? What do you think about the practices there that um, Oslo is uh, explaining here? The two big challenges for both the farming industry and the wild fish industry at the moment are sea lice and the crossbreeding. So as Osa uh, explained to us very eloquently there, this um, breeding of fish for a particular purpose within a cage has meant that the genetic traits that the wild salmon, individual wild salmon populations have developed over 10,000 years, they can be very seriously damaged if they crossbreed with, the, uh, with the fish that have been reared to live in a cage. The second issue is the issue of sea lice. Sea lice are a really serious issue in terms of the damage that they can do. Just for those who don't really know much about these um, parasites, can you just explain what they are? These are a skin parasite and... Um, the parasite itself, uh, that the one we're concerned about, is one that only uh, uses salmon-type uh, species, salmon or trout, indeed Arctic char as well, as their host. So they don't actually uh, cause any issues for any other sea fish. It grazes literally on the uh, mucus and the skin 
of the uh, of the salmon itself and and it's it's the intensity in fact of the farming that's allowed the success of, of the of these lice these sea lice actually right yeah and ju- just to say i mean these sea lice are absolutely natural and um, there is sometimes a lot of confusion about this and it's as if mm. you know um, salmon farmers have brought in sea lice that's not the case it's just that they're rearing so many individual bodies um so close together that uh, they act as the perfect host for these creatures who are looking, remember, for fish that are in fairly low densities moving very fast. And literally, you know, uh, they are delighted to find then big concentrations of hosts in a particular location. What what can we do about it? Um, Also, what can we do about this problem? By keeping the fish longer away from open seas, that is uh, one thing. But there are is a whole battery of uh, different ways to get rid of the lice, and and some of them are uh, removing the lice on the fish once they have attached, and the other uh, part is avoiding the sea lice from getting into contact with the salmon. Uh, and we prefer the second actually because uh, the first one you have to crowd and pump the fish a lot. And this is causing a lot of uh, welfare issues for the farmed fish. But there are different ways where you can prevent the lice from meeting the fish. And one of them is to keep them in what we call uh, the semi-closed containment systems in, in the sea. If you can picture a teacup that you put into the sea and where you have to pump the water into the system from very deep water where the sea lice is not placed. And then you avoid both uh, sea lice from entering the system and you also prevent the fish from getting out of uh, all these systems. How widespread is that technique now? In Norway, it is getting uh, more and more. Most of the big uh, companies, they have one or two prototypes. They are still prototypes, so to say. And even though they are sold on the market and there are companies that live on producing and selling this, uh, there is a lot of developmental uh, stages left to develop them. It's interesting, though, because when I was listening to Ken and I was listening to where he buys his farmed fish from off the, the coast of, um, of County Clare, was that right? Um, yeah, County Mayo, yeah. Clare County Island. Mayo, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That sounded great because it sounded like there was this wonderful fresh Atlantic water flying through where the farmed fish were. Um, and the system you're talking about is entirely closed. Where should I be positioning myself as a consumer on this in terms of my judgment? Because the Irish one sounds all kind of fresh and windswept and lovely, but then your ones in Norway sounds kind of clean and, and sort of sanitized. I suppose. No, but I, I think that what we have to also to remember is that uh, at least from from a Norwegian perspective, and also for the other uh, salmon producing uh, companies, this is an industry, and the aim is to produce food. If you have the possibility to buy wild and you like it, so that is really good. But it is an industry. In 2021, Norway exported 1.6 million tons salmon. And if you want the world population to eat salmon, that is one of the most healthiest uh, fish species that we have, you cannot take them from the wild. Then you will destroy the, the wild fish. It seems like we've kind of already destroyed the wild side anyway. Isn't that the case, Ken? Can I, can I maybe disagree with Osa? Um, I think we've got to the very kernel of the problem now. The fact that the aquaculture industry has now become a massive industry. Each individual bay, as far as I'm concerned, has a certain amount of biological capital. There's a certain element of that capital then that you can use for food production, for food harvest and so on. It's when you overtax that biological capital is when you have particular problems. So the reason I mentioned Clare Island 
is because of the fact that um, in financial terms, um, really, I, I don't think you, you couldn't, in fact, run the industry as it is today based on Clare Island. The reason they make their money is because they have a niche market. But the great beauty of what they're doing is the fact that they're living within the ability of that bay to actually sustain that level and that density of farming. When farming started off, certainly in Ireland, I can only speak for Ireland and Scotland, it was a cottage industry. But as the densities increased and as the pressure on the bays increased, we had really serious situations that emerged very quickly. And the way I look at it is that was down to the actual use of the bays as part of an industry. As you're setting industrial targets for what is a biological system. And I see an inherent contradiction in that. Let me be honest with you. I have absolutely no issue whatsoever with aquaculture. And as I say, I think some of the technology, the innovation is actually breathtaking. But my big problem is in terms of the densities. If you had a situation where you had a modest industry spread out over very large areas, I think you could greatly reduce the impacts. But unfortunately, we're way beyond that point now. We're setting ourselves these enormous industrial targets based around a situation where we're using nature. And I think that's a real difficulty. Uh, uh, also, can I bring you in on that? Yeah, I just need to say that I'm most familiar with the Norwegian uh, industry. I'm not so much familiar with how they do it in, in other countries. But in, in Norway, we have something that we call the traffic light system that regulates how much farming you can have against, uh, also up, uh, compared to how much lice uh, infestation you have. So there are places around the coast where you have more lice than other places and in those places that we have a lot of lice problems you are not allowed to produce so much salmon than you are in other places so this is kind of regulation is it working yes it is it is working mm. and I, I i agree that we should we should not uh, increase this intensity so much that this it is a danger for for the nature and i think that is also why in norway this diversity concept is also getting more and more develop because people see that you need alternative ways to produce salmon. I did not mention that uh, since 2018, it has been even more focused on land-based all the way to slaughter to produce uh, the whole life cycle on land. And that is also uh, happening as we speak. Did you know that in order to go from fresh water to salt water and back again, the salmon's body has to change? It's called osmoregulation. First, a salmon smolt begins taking in a lot of water and stops producing as much urine. Then, a kind of molecular pump in its gills switches direction, and instead of capturing sodium from the fresh water, it begins pumping sodium out. The changes reverse themselves when the adult fish returns to fresh water. Um, Ken, we, we've talked a lot about aquaculture and about farmed salmon. Can you tell us about wild salmon? What's the situation at the moment in terms of the stocks in the Atlantic? Yeah, well, the situation at the moment is very is very worrying. Um, so in round terms, um, around, say, the 60s and 70s, our best estimate is there was probably somewhere in the region of 10 million wild Atlantic salmon uh, feeding in the North Atlantic. And that's 10 million sounds like a very big number, but that would be spread across all of the rivers in North America and um, all of the rivers then in Europe, all the way from Russia right down to the borders of Portugal. And in the case of Canada and the US from the Tipper Labrador right down to the Connecticut River. So huge spread 
of these fish. And we have seen um, in the last 20 or 30 years, we've seen a really serious issue in terms of the marine survival of fish. There are certain indications at the moment that that may very well be linked to climate change. The seas are changing, uh, they're getting warmer. And as a result of that, our best estimate at the moment is probably less than 3 million uh, wild Atlantic salmon in the ocean. So that's an enormous drop. And the problem is because of the fact that we have these marine problems, um, any of the freshwater problems that we had in the past that we might have thought we had time to deal with, uh, a lot of those are now quite chronic and we really have to start tackling those. So if you have a situation where you have blockages in terms of migration pathways, weirs and so on, if you have a situation where you have uh, pollution, particularly uh, agricultural pollution that isn't a point source, it's spread all over the catchment, very difficult to deal with. Um, if you have issues in terms of increasing temperatures because of climate change, or indeed if you have aquaculture in the bays, or you have crossbreeding of, of aquaculture salmon, all of these pressures are additional pressures on top of what is already a fairly major issue in terms of marine survival. How can you fix some of those problems, though? I mean, fixing agricultural runoff pollution into major rivers, um, dealing with the temperature uh, issues that you have when you have major heat waves and, and record-breaking temperatures in the UK. How on earth are you going to manage that? Well, um, we have to go back uh, to, to the wonderful late Queen and her, her um, beautiful estate in Balmoral. That's on the River Dee. And there's a fantastic program ongoing there because um, down the years, we, we go to Scotland to visit Scotland, those of us that are lucky to uh, visit our work there. And we see this landscape that's practically divided trees. And we think it's wonderful. This is real nature. In fact, they have been managed down the years for grouse and for deer. And as a result of that, a lot of the vegetation is uh, missing from a lot of these rivers. And Marine Scotland Science did a wonderful project actually showing the thermal stress that these little streams are under as a result of climate change and temperatures that fish were finding very difficult, salmon were finding very difficult. So through the uh, trust on the River Dee, the River Dee Trust, they've really started a very innovative programme of uh, planting trees and bushes and so on to produce shading. And they've had a real effect in terms of the peaks of the temperatures. It's really the peak event is the one you want to be most most concerned about. So just in the same way that we try to cool down cities by planting trees, and that's what everybody says you can do, you're sort of doing the same thing with the rivers. We have to start doing stuff. Um, and I think in terms of nature, we then have to start thinking about serious mitigation at scale. And we have to try and whip up enthusiasm and whip up interest in terms of people being proactive to do what they can do in the area they have control of and the rest of it, leave it to the scientists and we can advise them what the situation is and what they need to do in order to try and counter the problems that may be beyond their control. And do you think that the salmon populations can actually sort of hang on for us to get smart enough to try and fix the problems or are they just going to carry on on a downward spiral actually for the next sort of decade or so? Um, well, there again, I think we have to turn to Norway. We always seem to turn to Norway for innovation. And uh, the ability that the Norwegian scientists have in terms of what we call gene banking is quite extraordinary. So they were hit with a parasite that infested in freshwater, a fluke that infested uh, salmon on about, if I remember rightly, it was 30 or 40 rivers, I think, that were practically wiped out by this creature. But very early on, they realized they needed to save the genes. So they developed gene banks and they cryopreserved the milt. So they basically froze the milt. 
but they also had living gene banks where they had little, little fry and par and so on from individual salmon populations that they now have oven ready, which they can use to put back into the rivers now that the problem has passed. I'm going to wrap up now, but um, I'm thinking of the the well-intentioned consumer out there, and I suppose all of us hope to be well-intentioned consumers. Um, When they're going into stores and they're thinking about buying fish and they're looking at the salmon and things, what kind of things should they be thinking about? I think that they should uh, trust uh, the authorities that are putting the, the food into the shops. At least when it comes to farmed fish, they are uh, quite uh, well controlled. Uh, there are different ways to certificate the fish. And these certification marks, they have uh, also different uh, meanings uh, when it comes to sustainability, pollution, as you mentioned. Uh, some of them also have welfare in it. Most of them you can trust. I think all, all of them, at least here, you can, you can trust that they are uh, they are produced uh, within these uh, regulations. That uh, imagine I'm faced with a choice between kind of like organic farmed and not organic farmed. What would you say on that one? That depends on your own values. From uh, organic, uh, when you just mentioned that, that has nothing to do uh, with welfare. That is more in a way what additives you can put into the feed. Uh, the regulation says no syn- synthetic. Uh, uh, ingredients, uh, but uh, it is done in the farm fish because some of the natural food that they get from the ocean is not possible to to put into the feed in a natural way. Your your personal view, would, if you were faced with that choice, I'm maybe a little bit. I have been working with uh, farm fish for uh, twenty years, and I trust uh, every. Uh, so I trust that the the fish that we have in the stores are safe for me to eat. That is why I don't hesitate to to buy it two three times a week either. Um, Ken, uh, I, I love your story of, of restoration, and I and I hope that all of that happens. But again, what what advice would you give to the well-intentioned consumer when when they're going down the fishmonger, yeah. and they and when they don't have the luxury of going down there with you, where you know exactly what you're talking about, what they should be looking <laughs> well, that's, for? Yeah, <laughs> I'm afraid that that sort of approach is a bit anarchy. I'm not expecting people to do that. I must say, I, I agree with everything really that Osa has said. I think as a food product, it's very carefully monitored. And we have to, as Ossa was saying, have faith in our authorities from that, from that point of view. I, I do think, though, that in terms of the source of the salmon and in terms of the um, biological components that we were talking about earlier, um, we really do need to be pushing out the envelope here. But in terms of choosing a particular salmon, I'll still be going for my Clare Island salmon and my he- high energy sites while they exist. Uh, and I mean, as Ossa said, that's that's a personal choice. And as I say, I'm spoiled by the fact that I know well what wild salmon tastes like. And I'm searching constantly for that consistency and for that uh, um, uh, firmness in the flesh of the fish. And I think of the high energy sites, you can get that where the fish are reared at very low densities and reared in conditions where it very much mimics what they might face in the wild environment. Thank you very much for giving these fascinating insights. I feel like I've really learned a lot. So um, thanks to Ken Whelan. Thanks to Osa Maria Esmark. Um, fascinating talking to you. Thanks for being guests on Ocean Calls. Thank you very much for letting me be here. Thank you, Jeremy. Great pleasure. 
Now to the part of the podcast where a famous person talks to us about their favourite ocean experience. And today's guest is one of the world's most famous DJs. Armin van Buren is a trance music legend who fills stadiums and clubs to bursting point. He's also the host of the State of Trance radio show and a World Wildlife Fund ambassador. Here is Armin van Buren's favourite tale of swimming in the dark around the Great Barrier Reef. Hi, I'm Armin van Buren. I'm a DJ producer from the Netherlands. I was brought up in a, in a really small place called Koudekerk. My dad was the local doctor, local GP over there. And we were fortunate enough to own a house next to the river. So I've always had this strange connection with water, with boats. And, and for some reason, I always need to see the ocean or need to see a river or, or water because it calms me down. When I just got to know my wife, we went on a tour to Australia to DJ there and I decided to stay for an extra month because it was always my dream of getting my diving degree. I still vividly remember one of the night dives that we did, seeing the water, uh, the life underneath the, the ocean surface. And uh, it really opened my eyes to how beautiful it is. We waited till it got dark and everybody had glow sticks. That's actually what glow sticks are for. You know, as a DJ, I see a lot of glow sticks in, in the events where I play, but glow sticks are actually designed also for deep sea diving. I think in the beginning, I, I felt scared a little bit, of course, because it's new. You know, when you when you go deep sea diving, you ha there's all these kinds of rules that you have to take into account. You know, you, you shouldn't descent uh, too fast in the beginning. Uh, you should watch your, your gauges and you have to watch your breathing. It's a very normal human reaction to go like, oh my God, God. you know, it's, it's a normal reaction. So you have to learn to really focus on your breathing, you know, in your stomach and just take four seconds in, hold your breath and four seconds out. And you see your heart rate going slower. And, and once you're relaxed and you, and you see all the marine life, then you can really enjoy it. Yeah, what happened? I had a flashlight and I followed the crew down and it was one of the wildest, most beautiful things I ever did in my life. I can highly recommend it to everybody. Of course, it's scared because you're going into water when it's dark, but that's when you see the most amazing marine life I saw massive turtles. I saw a small uh, baby uh, shark, I think. What struck me the most was that underneath the surface of the ocean water, there's a whole different life. You don't have to, to travel to Mars or to the moon to see like a whole different atmosphere. There's thousands of different species, plants, coral, fish, little shells. If you just look how much beauty there was and how it made me feel really small in any way, it made me have so much respect for marine life in general. I saw the coral, you know, especially in the Great Barrier Reef, there's, there's bits where the coral is not that much uh, affected yet. And it was just the colors and the, you know, it's been there for like thousands and thousands of years. I also saw already some plastic, you know, stuck uh, in the coral, um, little bits of, you know, dirt and, and, and an empty uh, gasoline tank somewhere, a plastic uh, container, um, you know, uh, little bits of glass that shouldn't be there. You know, it just made me feel a little bit embarrassed about, because I think when I was younger, 
sometimes I was easy to throw away my gum and not put it in the trash can, you know. But I guess it really changed me as a human being, just being uh, a deep sea diver. Uh, how uh, it made me so much more aware of of the impact that we as human beings have on life on Earth. And it's just it's better than any TV series or movies that you'll ever see. I highly recommend it. My thanks to Dutch DJ Armin van Buren for that inspiring story. Ocean Calls is produced by Euronews for ocean fans around the world. I'm your host, science reporter Jeremy Wilkes, and this series is produced by my colleagues Naira Davlashian and Natalia Olsner. The theme music is by Gabriel Dalmasso. Editing and sound design is by Jean-Christophe Marco, and mixing is by Mathieu Duchesne. Our editor-in-chief is Sophie Claudet. The Ocean Calls podcast is made possible by the European Commission's Directorate General for Maritime Affairs and Fisheries. You can find out more about our guests by following the links in the description. You can listen to Ocean Calls on Apple, Spotify, CastBox or anywhere you listen to your podcasts. Find out more on Euronews.com and watch our sister TV show called Ocean on Euronews.com ocean. Follow world news from a European perspective on Euronews.com. And I'm going to stop the recording now.